Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 and 16 through 17. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks to you, thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge, <clears throat> in the knowledge of him, the word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Uh, welcome to Trailhead. Um, thanks for joining us. We're kicking off a new series this morning. Um, we're going through the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. We're going to just take time and, and work our way straight through it. Um, and we'll talk about that in a moment. I want to, uh, to hit a few important points first. Today at 1230, we are having a members and regular attenders meeting. So if, if you are a member of Trailhead Church, uh, or you've been here a couple times and you think this may be someplace you'd like to call home, you're invited to this, okay? Uh, and, and at this meeting, we will be um, basically discussing a lot of important developments in the life of our church and uh, make sure that you guys are in the know, give you an opportunity to ask questions and just have a dialogue. I mean, um, our goal ultimately is to engage our members and our regular attenders and um, keep them involved both in what they know, but also in their voice um, as far as, as asking questions and, and the rest of that. So that's today at 12.30. You are invited to come back to that. That's a potluck lunch. If you um, fail to sign up, uh, don't worry about it. We will have food for you, um, college students, i.e. free lunch. So that's good news. Um, but yeah, you can just show up. We've got plenty of food, and um, we're, we're just going to have a good time talking about what God's doing at Trailhead Church. Next week, if you're brand new here and you're like, nah, I don't know if I want to commit to a lunch thing, uh, next week we have a Newcomer's Cafe, and, and that really is just a very low-key opportunity for you to sit down with me, with a few other leaders. Um, we'll serve you some pizza quickly after the second service and basically just give you a little bit of history about our church, answer any questions you have about who we are, why we're here, what we're doing, all that sort of stuff. So if you're curious at this point, you're just like, well, I, I would like to, to, to find out a little bit more, I'm going to invite you next week to our Newcomers Cafe. And of course, um, if you've been around and you want to become a member, our uh, membership class starts next week as well. There's information at the Connection Point. Please visit out there. A lot of exciting things going on. We want to help you get plugged in. We want you to um, really get the most out of being part of Trailhead. The gathering is a very small part. What we do here is a very small part of what it means to be part of Trailhead Church. Um, the church gathered is awesome. We get to sing and, and study the Bible and um, you know, meet new people, but it's the church scattered. Our small groups, our community groups, um, our, our, where people are doing life on life and ex exploring what it means um, to follow Christ in, in everyday life, where faith has very practical, powerful implications for how we live. And so get involved, okay? Get involved. Become part of the family. Don't show up like we're just a restaurant, eat your meal, and go home. That's not what this is designed for. This is a family, and we're inviting you in um, so that you can do life with us and really explore what it means to follow Jesus in community. All right, this morning we get to um, move into a new series through the book of Ephesians, and I'm, I'm really excited about this. I mean, I'm really excited about every new study, um, but I think with this one, for some reason, I just have this expectation. I think God's going to do some really cool things as we unpack um, Ephesians. I was, I was thinking, you know, I've just had a few conversations, and, and it's kind of funny. I think some people kind of assume that, that, like, when I come to these passages, it's me coming with all of my great learning, and I'm just like, oh, I'm so excited to share with you all the great things that I see in this text, and, and I'm just waiting to download to you all of my wonderful wisdom, and that's totally not what goes on at all. I, you know, I mean, yes, I've studied the text, and yes, I love it, but I'm, like, studying this thing every week, basically saying, God, what do you have for us? And, and, and as I discover it, I get all excited about it. And when I get excited about it, I get to share it, you know, with, with it. And it's, this, it's a dynamic learning experience. And I want to invite you into that process. Um, this isn't just me about me downloading stuff. It's, it's God, I think, revealing to Trailhead Church, us, today, what it means to follow Him. And, and He's speaking through these ancient texts because they're not ancient. They're living, they're breathing, and they're relevant to us today. And so as we go through Ephesians... Um, we get to explore the gospel. That's a word we use a lot. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. But, but one of the things that struck me is I've just been sitting in Ephesians getting ready for this series is that this is a book that is all about 
the gospel. Um, the word gospel is a, a, a word that literally means good news. That's what it means. Uh, the gospel, all in Gelion, the, the gospel was this message that, that people would bring from a far distance. It was a, a message of triumph, a message of good news. It was a message that brought deliverance. And, and that's what we were talking about when we talk about what Jesus has done and who he is. We're talking about this good news that ultimately is good news for every problem we face. It is incredibly practical, incredibly relevant. It is good news for every problem, because ultimately it speaks to the root problem we're dealing with, um, with all of our other problems. And, and that's kind of a big deal, because if we don't get to the root, we don't solve the problem. Um, I had an issue with my washing machine. Um, I'm kind of a do-it-yourselfer by force, not by choice. Um, I can be handy when I need to be. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm not always. I usually learn on the job sort of a deal. And so our washing machine wasn't working for some reason. And I'm like, well, I'll figure this out. So I get on the internet and I read a little bit and I do the troubleshooting, the diagnosis, and I start with the simple things and I'm working my way up. And, and I'm just convinced that I can fix this thing. It just won't power on for some reason. And so pretty soon I've got this thing torn apart. I'm looking at every connection. I'm looking at every relay. I'm looking at, and by the time I'm done, I'm like, I just can't figure this thing out. So I put it back together because there's nothing more embarrassing than calling a handyman and having him show up and you have it all torn apart, right? That's the guy that shows up with the t-shirt that say, you're paying me to fix what your husband broke, right? Those guys show up and it's, it's just not real um, good for my ego. And so I put the thing back together and I'm like, I'll let him take it apart. I'll let him. Um, so I finally break down. I call. He shows up. And uh, first thing he does, which is always the first thing you do when it's an electrical problem, is you check the breaker box. Well, what I hadn't noticed was that the breaker, instead of flipping all the way over so that it was obvious and you could just turn it right back on, had only moved like a centimeter. I mean, it had just barely moved. So that if you just glanced at it, they all looked like they were all on and all lined up. He turns it off, turns it back on, turns on the washer, and he says, that'll be $90. I'm like, dude, yeah, that was the most humiliating $90 I ever had to spend. Um, but here's the deal. I think a lot of us spend a lot of time a lot of energy, a lot of work trying to solve the wrong problems. We, we really do in our lives right now. There's a lot of turmoil in your life right now. There's probably a lot of struggle in your life right now. And I'm going to guess that for a lot of us, it's because we are just working, working, working to solve the wrong problem. We're putting a lot of energy in. And the problem is even if we solve the problem we think we're supposed to solve, we don't get to the root of it. We don't get to the heart of what's really going on, and so it just resurfaces in another area. Or we get frustrated because it doesn't seem to work. It doesn't seem to come around. You guys, this is what, I'm, what I want to get at when we, we unpack Ephesians, is that the gospel solves our deepest problems. The gospel speaks to the root of every other problem. Every other problem. I mean, if you think about it, what, what are the things that we're we're struggling with, right? I mean, we just go through life continually trying to solve problems, right? I mean, if I could just get someone to hang out with, if I could just get one really close friend, if I could just get a boyfriend, if I could just get a girlfriend, if I could just figure out what my major is supposed to be, if I could just switch my major and come up with a better one, if I could just move out of my house and stop dealing with with my annoying parents, if, if I could just move back into my house and have my annoying parents do my laundry and cook my food, if I could just get a job where I'm actually paid, if I could just get a better job where I'm actually better paid, if I could just get a better, better job where I'm actually paid and have all the free time in the world at the same time, if I could just get married and, and have a spouse, if I could just get remarried to somebody else other than the person I'm married to, right? If I could just get a boss who wasn't a capital J jerk, some of you were the boss, if I could just get an employee who wasn't incredibly lazy and inept, parents, how much time do we spend trying to solve the wrong problems, right? How much time do we spend spinning right? Cloth or disposable diapers, right? Because it's huge, right? It's going to destroy the world if I, if I choose wrong, right? My, my child is going to be 
environmentally irresponsible for the rest of his life if I don't get this right, right? If I don't breastfeed my child, right, he's going to grow up to be a misogynist. I mean, it's, it's a, I've got to somehow get this right, right? If, if my kid's not smart enough, right, we've got we to do baby Einstein music, right? Oh, wait, he might be a nerd. We better mix in a little Mumford and Sons so that he's actually kind of cool at the same time, right? Maybe he's not healthy enough. Maybe he's not strong enough. Getting, getting the right developmental experiences, getting him into the right school, right? Do we homeschool or do we go to public school? If we homeschool, he's going to be really smart, but he's going to be a nerd. If we public school, man, he's going to be totally corrupted. And Man, my kid is the best in the world. We're great parents. Why aren't those parents more like us? They're such losers. Man, my kid is the worst kid in the world. I can't believe what a nightmare my kid is. I hope nobody else can see. We're constantly spinning, constantly spinning, trying to solve the wrong problems. If I could just fix this thing, then everything else will come in line. Then everything will work out. We spin and we spin and we spin trying to solve the wrong problems, but most of the time, we're just spinning our wheels because we're not trying to solve the real problem. Here's the deal, you guys. The, the gospel doesn't tell us what job to take. The gospel doesn't tell us who to marry. The gospel doesn't tell us when we're ready to date or what our major should be or whether we should take that new job. It doesn't, it doesn't tell us those things. It doesn't tell us how to make our kids stop biting other kids in the nursery, but it does tell us how to navigate these things without losing our feet. It, it tells us how to stay um, centered in crisis. It tells us how to keep our bearings straight so that we can, in fact, actually make hard decisions with wisdom instead of out of emotional turmoil. We're not constantly trying to find our identity in the wrong things. I'll be good enough, smart enough. I'll be liked enough. My parents will finally approve of me. All of these things that we're constantly pursuing on an identity level that lead us to make horrible choices and keep us constantly in turmoil. The gospel speaks to those very deep heart issues. And from there, it gives us a solid foundation to navigate through the rest of life. It allows us to move through difficult situations without losing our feet. But, but more than just giving us wisdom, it actually changes us. See, the gospel isn't just good advice. In fact, I would say that the gospel is not advice at all. The, the gospel isn't like, here's the 10 recommended steps to health and well-being, to, to finally achieving emotional health and balance. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is a message. That's why it's called good news. It is a message of triumph. It is a message of victory. It is a message that ultimately delivers us into what the Bible calls the Sabbath rest of God, which very simply means that we're able to rest in His work for us instead of constantly trying to rest in our work for Him. It changes us. It changes our center of what makes us valuable. It changes what we're pursuing to ultimately give ourselves worth. It changes us in, in ways that ultimately free us, right? We're always pursuing the things that we desire, but we seldom stop to ask the question, why do I desire the thing I'm pursuing? Does that make sense? I mean, ultimately, we're all about free choice, right? What well, we want choices. That's great that you have a thousand choices. The real question, though, is why do you want the thing you're chasing? See, the gospel speaks to that question and ultimately frees us so that we're not choosing the wrong thing for the wrong motivations. Honestly, for some of us, the worst thing that can absolutely happen is that we get the very thing we're asking to get because we're trying to get the wrong thing to solve the wrong problem. The gospel changes us so that we are free, so that we're working from a place of security instead of insecurity, from a place of resting in who God is and what he's done instead of striving to do what we can't do and become what we can't change ourselves to be. It, it changes us. You guys, this is where Ephesians is going. When we get into this letter, when we unpack this letter, that's what we're going to be looking at is how this profound, simple message of the gospel frees us and changes us. And so just kind of give you an overview of where we're going. In chapter 1, we're going to be looking at the gospel. In this section, we're going to be called In Christ. That's going to, we're breaking it into three series. This mini-series is going to be called In Christ. And in chapter one, um, just to kind of give you an idea, we are going to go to the Google satellite view of the gospel, right? 
A lot of times when you, when you hear people talk about the gospel, they're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right? And that's appropriate because that's the heart of the gospel, that Jesus was our substitute, that he died in our place, that he satisfied God's wrath in our place. We as sinners are forgiven because he took our sin. He paid our price. And, and, and that great exchange, while he took our sin, he gives us his goodness and righteousness, when we simply trust in his finished work. That, that is the hero of the story coming in and solving the central crisis of the story. But the gospel, the good news, is a much bigger story. That's the climax of it. But, but in Ephesians 1, we're actually going to start in eternity past and work our way to eternity future. In Ephesians 1, we start with God before he ever created, and we end with us in glory. It's an incredible view of how God approaches the story and not just how we approach it. It's going to be deep, I'm telling you guys. Chapter 1, man, we jump right into the deep end of the pool. I don't know if you've read Ephesians 1 in a while, um, but it's, it's got some heavy stuff, and it's going to be fun um, digging into it and looking at it. But one of the things that it's going to do for us is that when we look at the story from God's perspective, it allows us to anchor our story in His. You ever watch a movie and, and find yourself in an incredibly tense spot. Some of you know this. I'm, I'm the kind of guy that when I like a movie, I don't like to know how it ends, right? If I start reading a book, I will not go and read the last chapter. Some of you are the exact opposite, and you know what I'm talking about. You go straight to the last chapter because you want to know who lives and who dies. You want to know how it ends, right? We're watching a movie, right? And it's this incredibly tense part, and Isaac leans over to me, and he's like, does he die? I mean, he just wants to know, right? Does he die? I'm like, no, Isaac, he doesn't. Oh, yeah, you relax, right? I can go through this incredibly tense part, and, and I can actually relax a little bit because I know he's going to live. You guys, that's what Ephesians 1 does for us. It tells us the end of the story. It tells us how we fit into the great story that is God's story for the universe, and it helps us make sense of our story because we know how it's going to end. We know where we're going, and we know how it all fits together. So that's where we're going with Ephesians 1. Then we move into Ephesians 2 and 3. Ephesians 2 and 3 talk about how the gospel impacts our experience of community. What does it mean for us to be in life with other people, some of whom we like, some of whom we don't? I don't know if you've been around the church very long, but, but it's kind of a diverse group. Even if it looks homogenous on the surface, when you dig in, you've got a lot of different personalities. You've got a lot of different things going on, and pretty soon you realize it's like your extended family. There are some people you really like and some you don't right? Some that, that you enjoy going to the picnic with and others you try and keep a distance from. What does it mean for us to actually honor Christ in community? What, what does it mean for, for us when things get hard, right? Community is incredibly rewarding. Community is incredibly challenging. What is, it, what is God going to do for us that allows us to experience community in a freeing and powerful way? And the third series is we're going to be looking at, at how God, the gospel, transforms everything we do in life. Um, living on mission, that's going to be the, on mission is going to be the third series. It's not that God tells us to do a bunch of new things. It, basically, the gospel changes us so that we do every normal activity with a new purpose. That's what it means to be on mission. That's what we're going to be looking at. What does it mean to parent on mission? What does it mean to be in marriage on mission? What does it mean to be an employee on mission? What does it mean to, how does the gospel speak into those, those things, both the joys and the challenges of those things, and ultimately free us um, in, in powerful ways? So that's kind of where we're going with the book of Ephesians. And I want to encourage you as we're going through it to read it, to read it. Uh, um, if, you don't, if you don't read much, you know, you're like one of the audiobook guys, then get the audio, right? Um, you can go to the esv.org website, and you can actually stream it right there on your iPhone, right? Uh, I've done that. It's only one chapter at a time, so you actually have to get on your phone and change the chapter. But you can do that, right, while you're exercising, uh, or just listen to chapter one 15 times in a row. That works too, and then just go to chapter two later, okay? But I'm going to encourage you, while we're going through this series, the book's only six chapters long. A, a serious, careful reading can be done it, depending on your reading speed, anywhere from a half hour to an hour. You can do that every week, right? You can do a chapter a day, a couple chapters if you, if you skip a day. I'm going to encourage you every week to read the book of Ephesians. And you're like, that's a lot of reading. Why would I want to read it like that many times? That's going to be like 20, 30 times. I'll tell you why, because by the time you're done, you're going to know the book. Not like understand it all, but you're going you're gonna to have a feel for this book. It's going it, to, beyond that, you're not just going to know how it feels, it's going to change how you feel. It's going to get into you 
the Word is going to start shaping you. And as we go through, you're going to engage the things that we're talking about on a deeper level. So I encourage you to actually open the Bible, spend some time, and read it as we're going through, okay? Because this is a book that's all about the gospel. And you guys, the gospel is good news. Who doesn't want to hear good news? Who doesn't want to engage good news? If we don't want to engage it, it's because we don't get that it's good. If it's drudgeries for us to open it up and get into it, it's because our eyes haven't been opened to the radical gift that's been given to us in this message. And that's part of what we're going to be unpacking as we go on. But here's the deal, you guys. It's good news because it is God's greatest solution to solve our most foundational problem. And, and here's at the heart of it what it will do. It turns sinners into saints. At the heart of the gospel, that's what it does. It turns broken people into whole people. People with broken, shattered dreams into people with biblical, expectant hope. People who are disappointed into people who are experiencing joy. People that are, are f- afraid into people that have a humble confidence in the person and the work of God, it turns sinners into saints. And we actually see that from the very start when we open up the book of Ephesians. Take a look. We're just going to take a look at the first two verses this morning in depth. But the letter opens up. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul. Uh, Who's this guy, Paul? Most of us have heard of him. Uh, A lot of people have already formed opinions about him, some positive, some negative, but very few have actually taken the time to study who he is and what his story is about. This guy has actually written most of the New Testament. He wrote the letter to Ephesians, but if you were to actually look numerically, he's written the most letters in the New Testament. He's had a powerful shaping influence on on the church, um, and I believe that was God's intention. God's intention all along. What's interesting is where the guy started. So keep your finger in in Ephesians and flip back to Acts chapter 7 because I want to show you something. In our black Bibles, that's page 916. Okay, so you're going to be flipping to the left to page 916. That's Acts chapter 7. I want to show you who this guy is, where he came from. So on page 916, Acts chapter 7, just starting in verse uh, 54, because this is our first introduction to this guy. Um, and his name is actually Saul at this point. God changes his name later on. Um, but at this point, his name is Saul, starting in verse 54. Now, when they had heard these things, they were enraged. Context, Stephen, who is a disciple, um, is in fact sharing the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and, and what he's done. And he's doing that with a group of people that are not very excited about the good news because it threatens their religious security, their position in society. The more they hear about it, the more angry they become uh, to the point where they get enraged and they ground their teeth at him, verse 56. But he, Stephen, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. He's the first martyr of the New Testament. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What a crazy, can you imagine? If you're getting like, you know what what it is to be stoned, right? It's just not a very pleasant experience, right? This isn't like, there's a guy that wrote a book called My Year of Living Living Biblically, and, 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 and he tried to fulfill the biblical commandments all the way through like for a year, and there are certain things in the Bible that say you're supposed to be stoned for, so he would actually carry pebbles in his pocket, right? And if somebody did one of those things, he'd throw pebbles at them and run away. Um, That's not what's going on here. Right? They're accusing him of blasphemy, which was uh, a, 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 an offense punishable by death. In fact, that's what they accused Jesus of and, and wanted to kill him for. So they drag Stephen out of the city. They pick up large stones, and basically they just all pelt him until he dies. Right? It's a really unpleasant way to go. Right? It's not very fast 
In fact, he has time as he's getting pelted with rocks to keep talking to them, <laughs> right? I have some more things I want to say to you, right? Now, I know the things that I would probably be saying, and they wouldn't be very pleasant in that moment, but I mean, this guy, full of the Holy Spirit, so changed, so freed by the good news of the gospel, even while he's dying, continues to share the good news with them to the point that um, as he's dying, the Lord did not hold their sin against them. I mean, how those words must have echoed. I'm guessing maybe even enraged the people who heard them. They didn't want this guy to be that free. They didn't want this guy to be that different because they didn't want the things he was saying to be true. They wanted them to be lies. They wanted him in the last minute to recant, to say, I was just kidding. But he didn't. With his dying breath, he gave testimony to the transforming power of the gospel. And I have no doubt that rattled around in their heads and made it worse. And I'm guessing it rattled around in Saul's head. That young man who was standing there guarding everybody's coats so that nobody would have their wallet stolen while they killed this dude, right? He heard that. But it did enrage him. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This is the first major persecution on the early church. And um, God used it, by the way. This is all part of God's plan. They had been huddled up in Jerusalem and were not spreading. And this was God's way of basically saying, it's time to scatter the seed. Let's move you out. And so they went, carrying the gospel with them. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church. That's a graphic word. It's this idea that's almost like he's, he's raping it. He is just ravaging it. He is violently angry. As he does this, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul is not a very nice guy. He is uh, what we would call today a religious zealot. He is um, a fundamentalist, and as Mark Driscoll is fond of saying, he's the kind of guy that put the fun into fundamentalism. I mean, he defines this radical nature of the traditionalist. I must defend my heritage. This new message is a threat. And and in fact, the Pharisees themselves were a movement that were set up um, to fight against this other group called the Sadducees, who were the more religious liberals of their day. The the Pharisees were the religious traditionalists, man. They guarded family values. They guarded the old school uh, understanding of what it meant to be a a Jew in that culture and in that time. And and, and they were the strictest, and they were the most hardworking people on the face of the earth, right? And and they they were at war with anybody who would corrupt their culture. They were at war with anybody who would come in and potentially threaten their idea of what it meant to to follow God. They rejected and they hated sinners. That's Paul or Saul. So self-righteous in his view of the world that he feels perfectly content ravaging the church. He feels self-justified dragging men and women out of their homes, throwing them in prison, seeing them delivered to their death. That's Saul. That's Saul. Not, not a nice guy, right? Not the kind of guy that you're really going to enjoy spending a lot of time with, right? Here's the deal. Saul was trying to solve the wrong problem in the wrong way. He thought the problem was um, cultural. He thought the problem was political. He thought the problem was was this corrupting influence. And and if he could just go to war with this corrupting influence and defeat the sinners, defeat the evildoers, drive them out of existence, then somehow he could solve the problem in himself and for his culture and for his people. But it was the wrong solution to the wrong problem. He thought the problem was all those sinners. If I can just get rid of them then we will be okay, right? The good news to him was that I'm better. I know better than you. I am better than you. I live a better life than you. I live a more moral life than you. I am more self-controlled than you. I am more religious than you. That was the good news to him. The good news was I am actually achieving in my quest to make myself a more religious, more upstanding citizen. And because of that, I have the right to look down on you and judge you. And for him, that ultimately meant not only to look down on, but to move in violence toward them, right? 
He's the type A guy. And we all know type A guys. Type A guys always feel good about themselves when they're winning. They always feel bad about themselves when they're not. Paul is the classic type A guy. And for him, he had defined winning as, as ultimately driving out the corrupting influences who might threaten, ultimately threaten his view of Judaism and his view of what it meant to, to follow God. And as a result, you guys, at this glimpse of Saul, he hates Jesus. He hates Jesus. He hates anyone who follows Jesus. He hates anyone who names the name of Jesus. He is breathing threats against them because they threaten everything that makes him feel important. They threaten everything that ultimately makes him feel like his world makes sense. They threaten his view of what it means to win. That's Saul. Okay, he's a nutcase. He's not the kind of guy you want against you or angry at you because he is not a nice man. Now jump over to Acts chapter 9, just right across the page. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what they called uh, Christianity during that period of time, um, because they kept talking about the way to God, the way to, to be saved, the way to be made right. So they, anybody belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. His passion to persecute the church couldn't be contained. <laughs> He's like, there's not enough Christians in Jerusalem anymore. They all ran away. So I'm going to go to the high priest and see if I can get some legal letters to like carry this campaign farther out. I'm getting a little bored here. I need more people to attack. And so... Um, and so they did. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Then he said, who are you, Lord? That's not necessarily, he's just confused. The word Lord is significant. Um, but he's not questioning who God is. What he's saying is, is you clearly are an angelic supernatural power. Who, who are you, person in authority? And he said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I love what Jesus does here. I mean, he goes right to a command. <laughs> Get up, go to the city. Then you'll be told what you're supposed to do. I love this. Um, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, he's helpless, and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Can you imagine what it's like to be Saul in this moment? <laughs> How upended his world was? This is Saul's conversion experience. This is Saul's coming to Jesus moment, okay? Not exactly warm and fuzzy. Right? It's not like Saul suddenly like, oh, I see the light, right? No, all he sees is darkness. It's not like Saul of a sudden saying, oh, yeah, Jesus is beautiful. I want to follow him. No, it's like, it's like uh, the exact opposite, right? Jesus doesn't show up and say, oh, Saul, my heart breaks for you. Saul, you're like, I'm a hen and I want to gather you in. Jesus shows up and he's like, dude, you want to pick a fight with me? Really? You want to pick a fight with me? I mean, you, you really want to try and persecute me? All right, dummy. Let's do it, right? Let's do it. I, I have enough of your stupidity. I have a plan for you. And I'm going to show the world how great I am by using you. I, I'm going to show the world my glory by having my glory demonstrated in somebody as idiotic as you. So get up, go to the city, I'll tell you what to do later. I mean, I love it. He's just like, all right, type A dude, Mr. Winner, I'm going to knock you off your horse. I'm going to make you powerless. I'm going to humiliate you a little bit. I'm going to blind you, make you completely helpless. Can you imagine this guy who's breathing threats? He has to be led by his hand into the city. And he sits in the city in darkness, completely helpless. He doesn't eat or drink for three days. It's not because people didn't feed him. It's because he had this inner turmoil of what's going on, right? 
Jesus, on the road to Damascus, Jesus broke into his world and said, enough, enough, enough of who you are and what you think you can do, enough of you're trying to solve the wrong problems in the wrong way. I am going to make you a trophy of my grace because my grace is that great. You guys, this isn't, this isn't Jesus punishing Saul. This isn't Jesus saying, okay, I'm, I'm really annoyed. You've heard enough of my people. I'm going to show up and I'm going to hurt you back. That, that's not what's going on here. This is Jesus showing up to pour his grace out on an undeserving sinner. And, and he doesn't necessarily do it in soft, sentimental ways because that's not who Jesus is. He's not a fun-loving, hugging hippie, right? He is God. And when God shows up, he often breaks into our world in uncomfortable ways, but he always does it for our good and for his glory. He breaks into Saul's world and says, enough, you will be my trophy. You will be for my glory and you will experience my goodness. So Saul went and sat for three days. And God shows up to this other guy, Ananias, who's an older guy. He's like, hey, Ananias, I got this guy, Saul, sitting over here. Uh, you need to go share the gospel with him because he needs to hear the good news. And Ananias is like, isn't that the guy that's killing everybody? You want me to go to him? And God's like, yeah, exactly. And Ananias is like, all right, Lord, you're, you're the one who tells me what to do. I don't tell you what to do, so I'm going to obey. And he follows, and he goes and he shares the good news. Now, what I love, if you were to keep reading in, in Acts, you know what the good news is for Saul? Jesus told Ananias to go with this message. I want you to tell him how much he's going to have to suffer for my namesake. That's the gospel. Paul, you're going to suffer. And you're going to suffer a lot. But you're going to do it for my name. You're going to do it for my glory. See, this isn't punishment, you guys. This is a hard message of truth, but it's not punishment because ultimately Ananias is showing up and saying, God has a plan for your life. It's a wonderful plan of suffering. But through that path of suffering, you're going to experience a glory unlike you've ever experienced before in your life. You're going to experience a greater purpose and a greater motivation. You're going to to experience greater joy than anything you've ever been able to pursue for yourself. And we know from Paul's later letters that that's exactly what's true. He wrote to the Philippians that that when I look back on the rest of my life, when I look back on all the things that I used to value, I count them as rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge, surpassing glory of what it means to know Christ. In other words, he looks back on all his achievement in his previous life and he says it's all rubbish. It's that word, man. It's this Greek word, skubalon, that that is just... um, it's a, it's a harsh word in the Greek, but it's meant to convey very strongly what he thinks about. When he looks back at, at his past life, he says, it, it's garbage, it's trash, it's crap. It's crap. That's My best accomplishments are filth compared to what God has given me now, the surpassing knowledge of what it means to know Christ. Why did Jesus choose Saul? Why did he choose Saul? Was it because Saul was an attractive guy, real friendly, real winning personality, kind of guy you want on your greeting team? Was it because he, he was like this type A personality and Jesus is like, oh yeah, well, you're driven. That'll be helpful to me, right? As if there weren't a bunch of other driven type A guys he could have chosen. Why did he choose Saul? There's only one answer. It's because he wanted to, because he chose to. Because in his sovereignty, out of his desire to be glorified and for his name to be praised and for the glory of the gospel to be made clear, he's like, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to choose you. Not because of what you give me, but because of what I'm going to give you. Not because of what you bring to the table, because I'm going to show you what I bring to the table. And when I show you what I have, it's going to transform you in ways, and I'm going to use you to change the world. Not because you're great, but because I am. You guys, this is the journey where God took Saul from being a sinner and made him into a saint. And it wasn't because of what he did for God. It was because of what God had done for him. The very Jesus he was persecuting was the same Jesus who had died for his sins. Jesus was Saul's substitute in judgment. 
He died the death Saul deserved to die. He suffered the penalty Saul deserved to suffer. And when he rose again to new life, he rose in new life for Saul. And when Saul came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when he came to trust that Jesus was who he said he was and did what he said he did, he was absolutely, completely, irrevocably forgiven for all of his past deeds and for all of his future sin. And he was in that moment not only declared to be a saint, but then put on a journey of becoming the saint he had already been declared to be. I've declared you to be a new person. In fact, I'm going to give you a new name. You're no longer Saul, the persecutor of the church. You are now Paul, the one who will suffer for my namesake. And in that new identity, you are going to become the person I've declared you to be. He knew what it meant to be a sinner, and he knew what it meant to go from being a sinner to a saint. Jesus showed him incredible grace, and Paul knew it, you guys. When you read his letters, man, it just drips. He never got over grace. He never stopped being amazed at grace that God would take him. He calls himself the chief of sinners. That doesn't mean that he compared himself numerically, sin-wise, to the rest of the world and said, yeah, I've committed more sin than anybody else. What it meant was he identified himself as the chief of sinners. He understood how thoroughly, irrevocably sinful he was in his pre-Christ state. But as the chief of sinners, God said, I will redeem you. I am powerful enough glorious enough, gracious enough to take even you and make you into a trophy of my grace. It's amazing. Go back to Ephesians 1. And that's why I think when you, when you understand that, you understand this opening. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. An apostle was somebody who was sent with authority to speak on behalf of the one who was sending him. The, the Greek word apostle is later... In Latin, it becomes our English word missionary. Same idea. Somebody who is sent with a message with the authority to speak on behalf of the person who sent them. It's a position of authority. It means your word has the very power or the authority of the person who sent you. Okay? So Paul is right off the bat saying, I have authority. I'm Paul, the apostle. I am Paul with authority. I am Paul with power. And a lot of people read that and they're like, man, Paul was on a power trip. Paul was just always announcing his authority. Paul was always announcing his power over other people. He's just the same type A guy he's always been. I think that is a complete misreading of what's going on here. This is not Paul on a power trip. This is Paul huh, with a statement of wonder. I am Paul, uh, an apostle. I, I am amazed that this happened. In fact, when you read that, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God's the only one that could make this happen. God's the only one powerful enough to take me from who I was and change me into who I am and who I'm becoming. I am amazed that I get to announce to you that I am Paul the apostle. It's not him on a power trip. It's him out of humility crying out in gratitude for the grace he's received. I have been changed, and in that change, I've been empowered, and I've been sent on a mission. See, Paul never stopped being amazed that he was an apostle or that he was a recipient of grace, that he was being called to be a saint. And he ultimately has the authority to give this message, and he has the, the story to back it up. He's not just talking about the gospel of God. He's somebody who's been radically transformed by the gospel of God. He isn't just talking about theology. He isn't just a guy that's studied a bunch of stuff and knows a bunch of stuff. This is a guy who has been radically transformed in his affections for God. And he dedicated the rest of his life to sharing that good news with others. And Paul lived his life from that point forward sharing the gospel and planting, what we call planting churches, starting new churches in areas where there weren't, or taking a group of people and, and forming new churches around them as the Spirit of God simply called people through the power of the gospel to Jesus. And he planted the church in Ephesus. In fact, he spent multiple years in Ephesus preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel. And he wrote this letter. Uh, at this point, the book of Ephesians is written 
um, uh, after the church has been planted, and he's actually writing from a prison cell in Rome at this point, and he's thinking about his churches in this area, and he's concerned for them. He wants them to stay grounded in the gospel, so he writes this letter to them from that prison cell so that they would stay grounded. And he writes it um, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, there's, beyond that, when you read this letter, there's not a lot of personal stuff in here, not a lot of questions being answered, not a lot of people being named by name. That's probably because um, this letter was meant to be circular. He wrote this letter to Ephesus, but that letter was supposed to go from Ephesus into all the surrounding churches. Ephesus was a leading city and a leading church during this period of time, and, and so it was influential. And so when he wrote to them, he wanted this message to be disseminated through Ephesus to the rest of the churches. By the way, that fits us, huh? It's being disseminated from that church to us today as a church that's being founded through the same gospel for the same purpose. Now, just to give you an idea of Ephesus, um, because I love how he says, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, to the saints who are in Ephesus, um, if I were to call you a saint, how would that feel? I had a guy, Joe Thorne, was recently, recently preaching at, a, at an event, and he got up, and at the very beginning, he's like, good morning, sinners. Good morning, saints. And he wasn't talking to two different groups of people. He's talking to the same group of people, sinners who were becoming saints, people who had believed the gospel. And I found in my own heart, just as I was reflecting on that, that I identified much more easily with the sinner part. When he's like, good morning, sinner, I'm like, yeah. I'm a sinner. <laughs> you must have seen me this morning, right? And then he's like, good morning, saints. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's not me, right? Oh, wait, it is. Why? The Ephesians would have identified with that. I think when they read that opening letter, they would have had that same disconnect. Like, really? You're talking about us? I mean, the Ephesians were like, this was a crazy city, you guys. This was one of the leading influential cities of the time. It was a port city. Uh, it had major roads in and out of it. It was influential. Uh, it had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world in it, um, the Temple of Artemis. Um, at the Temple of Artemis, they worshipped this goddess, Artemis. Isn't she pretty? Um, that's actually one of the idols they've, they've, uh, it comes, that dates from this period of time. Um, she was the huntress. She was the goddess of uh, virginity. And so she was seen as both the protector and tormentor of women. Um, virgins, before they got married, young women, would have to actually go and serve two years in her temple. And, and I, it's weird stuff. They had to become bears. I don't know what that means. They, it, it goes back to this crazy story where these girls persecuted or poked one of Artemis's bears until it attacked them and killed them, and one of their brothers killed the bear, and she was so mad. She's like, you're now going to become my bears. And young women had to go serve two years in this temple. It was, it was enslaving. It was demeaning. It, was, it, was, it had to be terrifying. I mean, this was, this was a crazy city, highly influential city, a city that was motivated by power, sex, and money, just like every city since. It was a hub of cultural activity, and the people who became believers in that city were far from saints. The people who became believers in that city were people who were the past, people who had a history, people who had made bad choices, people who had done dumb things and bad things and had bad things done to them. And Paul looks at them and says, you are saints. I am writing to the saints of Ephesus. When we talk about saints, we're not talking about dead guys that somehow made it somehow to per perfection. We're talking about people that have been set apart by the gospel of God for the glory of God. That's what the word saint literally means, set apart. When it says you are a saint, it means that you've been set apart by God for his glory, by his grace. They were saints. They understood what it meant to be sinners and be turned into saints. It's all grace. It's all grace. You get to the end of that verse, and, 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 and it says, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And you're like, man, that kind of sounds like he's saying they're saints because of something they're doing for Jesus. But that's kind of a misunderstanding of the word. The word here isn't emphasizing their fidelity to God. It's faithful in the sense of full of faith. These are people who are becoming faithful be they're, they're growing in their fidelity to the faith, their faithfulness to God, because they're full of faith, and their faith is actually changing them. In other words, they are people that have been declared saints by God and are progressively being made into what they've already declared to be. And in that process, they're learning what it means to be full of faith. 
to let their faith actually change their behavior, to let it influence their choices, to allow it to free them in profound and powerful ways. That's us, just like them. Because this is what the gospel does. It doesn't just change our status before God. It ultimately changes our character in this world. It frees us. And then Paul gets to the intro. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul does something very interesting here. We're going to actually close out with this. He takes the two common greetings of that time. Karain, which meant joy to you. And shalom, which meant peace to you. Karain was the, the, the greeting of, of the common greeting of the Greeks. Shalom, the common greeting of the Jews. And what that kind of meant was like when we show up and we're like, hey, how you doing? We don't really want someone to download their entire life history to us in that moment. You know what I'm saying? You ever had one of those moments? You're like, how are you doing? And they want to have like a counseling session with you. And you're like, that's not really what I meant, right? What I meant was I hope you're doing well, right? That's kind of what we mean by that, right? When we say, how are you doing? It's, it's like, I hope you're doing well, Right? I'll talk to you later, right? When they said Karain, what they meant was, I hope you have joy. When they said Shalom, they, they meant, I hope you have joy or, or peace. But Paul actually changes this a little bit. He doesn't say joy to you. He says Karis, not Karain, Karis, which means grace. He's not saying, I hope you have a good day. He's saying, I offer you something that you don't have, and that is grace. I offer you something that, that I don't just hope you're going to have a good day. If you get this, you will have a good day. I'm going to offer you unconditional acceptance with God, grace, unconditional acceptance with the most high and a new standing both in heaven and on earth as a result, grace, grace to you and peace, shalom, the very wholeness and balance of God. When he uses shalom, it's, these are theologically rich words. What he's saying is, I hope you have the full blessing of God on your life as a result of the grace you receive. That's the promise of the gospel. That's why I say it ultimately is the solution to our deepest problem because it offers us grace, unconditional acceptance, and ushers us into peace, the shalom, the transformed life of wholeness and balance that comes from being right with God. If we don't have those two things, we will continually be trying to solve the wrong problem in the wrong way, and we will never be able to achieve what we truly want because what is it that we truly want? In the end, what we truly want is shalom. We want wholeness, balance, joy, fulfillment, purpose. Every choice you make is ultimately a choice that you think is going to take you closer to shalom. And if you're not operating out of the framework of grace, you will continually make the wrong choices and try and fulfill that in the wrong ways. The gospel is the solution to our deepest problem. And as we unpack Ephesians, that's what we get to look at. How does it impact us today?